Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. This shit ain't nothing to me, man. I'm a dog. They must have amnesia. They forgot that I'm him. myself in the mirror and I had to tell myself either you believe it's possible to stand up and make a difference or you don't and if you don't believe it then shut up and stay on the sideline you know if we have to amp up pressure that's what we're going to do what is going on? My name's Hartzell. Happy Tuesday. It's your KC Morning Show. And you know that on Tuesdays, my friends, Tuesdays on this program, we take back America, reclaiming that radical history of America. Myself, Professor Harvey J.K., the Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, my brother Harvey K is on the road coming back from New York, but he made sure that I would let you all know solidarity forever to the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, solidarity to every worker in the world from Amazon warehouses to Starbucks or your local cafe for that matter, Trader Joe's. The list continues striking for what they deserve, what is owed unto them, striking against the big three at the same time. Hot Labor Summer is now a stand-up fall. So on the show today, this is Professor Harvey K's appearance on C-SPAN, talking the four freedoms, talking President FDR, with Bill Harris, the executive director, the boss man over at the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Presidential Library. And according to Professor K, this is his best television performance that he's ever had. And today, my friends, today we hit play. Kansas City, my fellow KC morning hoes, will we be a four-time best local podcast? Do you want to update your bios? Do you want to call yourself a dynasty, Kansas City? Because that's what we would be. Four times in a row? Come on. It's unheard of. Never been done before. Thepitchkc.com. I've got the links in the show notes. But on top of that, because y'all know that I'm not too proud to beg, I am also on the ballot, best radio personality, best personality in general, and yeah, that's it. It's an honor just to be nominated, Kansas City. You know what to do, thepitchkc.com. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do, Kansas City. Back in your feeds tomorrow, it is a good day to be a Kansas Cityan, absolutely. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. They are unanimous in their hate for me and I welcome their hatred. The KC Morning Show. I'm Bill Harris, the director here at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum. And today I'm very pleased to welcome Harvey Kay, an emeritus professor of um, democracy and justice at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. He's an old friend here at the library, He's spoken here before. We always love to have him. Welcome back, Harvey. Thank you. It is such a pleasure. And it's and I'm going to now make it clear to everyone. Congratulations, Bill, on becoming the director. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Uh, and today, of course, we've got a wonderful book to talk about, your, your book on the four freedoms. And uh, four freedoms are ever relevant. Uh, or should be ever relevant because um, even more than sort of something that's aspirational, we would hope that they're bedrock in what we do every day and how we think about what we do. So I always like to ask this question just to start. Um, what what brought you or what, um, what did you want to talk about the four freedoms in relationship to the past and to today? Sorry, and I hope I don't take too much time explaining this because there's actually a bit of a story behind mm -hmm. it. Um, I grew up in a, in a FDR democratic household. So there was no question about what, how, how the family felt about, about Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but what, but my first major work in American history, cause I trained actually in, in different fields than American history, but my first work was on Thomas Paine. And I, what I did was I told the story of Thomas Paine's life and labors and then 
basically retold the American story through Thomas pa as, as, as the legacy of Thomas Paine. And when I got to the Roosevelt years, the thing that really struck me, because this is important, everyone had assumed that, F that, that Thomas Paine had been forgotten in American history. Everyone had assumed that conservatives and reactionaries of all sorts had suppressed Thomas Paine's memory. And then there I was in the 40s, okay, the 30s actually, in the late 30s, and first of all, Eleanor Roosevelt in a very, very small but important book, The Moral Basis of Democracy, dedicated more pages to, t to discussing Thomas Paine on questions like freedom of worship, freedom of religion, freedom and democracy than she did to anyone else in the, for, for anyone else in the book. And then, of course, I went through, <laughs> call me, call me crazy. I went through all of FDR's speeches. I was looking for some kind of, uh, acknowledgement on his part. And what was striking was that on the, Washington's birthday weekend of 1942, when FDR was going to explain to Americans that indeed we were capable of a global two-front war, and he had everyone get world maps to see what that entailed, he opens that fireside chat on that Washington's birthday weekend, recalling Washington's retreat across New Jersey to the Delaware. And he then reviews the state of American forces, the trials and tribulations of MacArthur in the Philippines. I mean, he really covers all the bases to get Americans ready for a serious long-term, quite long-term possibly, war effort. But he closes that fireside chat with an amazing set of remarks. He basically he starts quoting Thomas Paine's famous lines from the first of the American crisis papers. These are the times that try men's souls. And he quotes it at length. And basically, to paraphrase FDR, he said, Payne spoke for us then, Payne speaks for us now, because Payne promised that the victory would, the triumph would ultimately be, you know, this great moment. And so I thought, wow, here's FDR. So I paid all the more attention to FDR's speeches in the wake of doing that uh doing that, that book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. And I had an original, first idea was I was going to write on the Economic Bill of Rights speech of January 1944, because I thought it was imperative for Americans to be aware of that speech, the popularity of those ideas, and then, of course, how it had come to be suppressed in ensuing years. But just around that time, a professor who ended up at Harvard, a law professor, Cass Sunstein, brought out a book on the Second Bill of Rights from a legal perspective. And I thought, oh, I don't want to look like I'm piggybacking on Cass Sunstein. And I talked to my editor and he says, well, let's go bigger. He says, think about going bigger. So I, as I backed away and I looked at the trajectory of FDR's work, I saw, as I'll maybe get to talk about later, he opens his, one of his big campaign speeches in 1932, after he's won the nomination, is calling for an economic declaration of rights. And then, of course, in January of 41, he gives the speech, which is, is essentially the call to arms for Americans, even though the war, our involvement in the war directly would not occur until December 7th of that year. But that speech that he delivers, that State of the Union message of January 41, closes on the four freedoms. And I thought, wow, it all hangs on the four freedoms, okay, both in terms of America's purpose and promise, and moreover, in terms of America's, if you like, responsibility. And so it, it, it was that moment where I said to my editor, you know, what I really like to work on, as some in some ways to honor my parents' generation, is FDR and the greatest generation, and I want to frame it in terms of the four freedoms. And as I went through the work on that, I mean, I took several years to do it, what struck me is despite everyone's claims that Americans couldn't tell you what the four freedoms were during the war, and I've had a lot of arguments about that, it was striking the degree to which the four freedoms not only became a slogan, okay, for you know, a war bond drive and, 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 and any number of speeches. But indeed, it, it actually became the definition of that generation when you think about the generation of the Depression, the war. And then, and everyone thinks of my generation for the 60s, but actually it's that generation which was, which elected liberals to office, elected 
literally veterans of the Depression and World War II into Congress. And the tra- and what Lyndon Johnson pursues, basically, in terms of the Great Society and the War on Poverty, is a further extension, and not to mention immigration reform, okay? Medicare and Medicaid. In many ways, the, the story of Roosevelt and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. himself talked about the long age or great age of Roosevelt really does extend from 32, 33, all the way through. And I see the four freedoms as the spirit of that generation, the ethos of that generation. And it's interesting that you should uh, mention the very fact, or, or not the fact, but the discussion that's had about whether Americans knew the individual um, uh, for freedoms, uh, freedom of speech, religion, um, freedom from want and freedom from fear. But in some ways, what I find interesting about them, and then when one thinks about the generation and this moment in January 1941, this kind of transition from one sort of approach to another focus, is that um, there's, there is overlap within them, so that one is interrelated with the other, is interrelated with the other, and so that in some ways it is important to know the different ones, but at the same time, they all build upon each other as um and they're all except they're they're less powerful without the others together with them right think about because i would think about african-americans in the south whose rights were being suppressed ever since the post-reconstruction era okay the idea of freedom of speech and expression was intimately linked to freedom Mm -hmm. from fear yes that's right Uh, given given the muggings of elderly jewish you know, men and women on the streets of places like Boston and Brooklyn and elsewhere by really reactionary sort of almost, well, Hitlerian kind of youth in America. Okay. I mean, freedom of worship may have been the case, but that freedom mm-hmm. of worship extended beyond a synagogue or a temple. That's right. This whole idea of freedom from fear to, to be able to walk the street kind of, of freedom. So yeah, they're absolutely very decidedly intimately connected. And the other thing I'd say, and this was also very striking to me. I, I did, I just, when I get into a subject, I just dig in. And it was, it was really, well, it, it really was amazing that when you looked at it from the vantage point of the generation that heard that speech, whether they were in their sixties and seventies or, or younger, when they heard FDR's words, we, 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 sh- we shouldn't assume they, that what FDR said exactly was what ended up being in their memory banks. So, and what I mean by that is that most people when asked about the four freedoms, even if they couldn't name them individually, they could actually speak to them, number one. And the other thing was that they heard that speech, not necessarily in the global terms that FDR wanted them to hear it. They heard about it in terms of, well, we've come through the New Deal and the New Deal is not gonna stop. Okay, we are going to extend the rights of working people by way of industrial democracy, the National Labor Relations Act. We are going to make sure that all faiths are honored in their respective ways, that immigrants themselves will be understood as American as anyone else, whether, you know, native born or newly arrived. And indeed, and to take even further, that freedom from want, which the New Deal spoke directly to, that they would continue to pursue it, which would literally at some point jump, leap, leap us to the Economic Bill of Rights. Yeah. And that freedom from fear, I mean, Americans actually said that they heard it in those terms. And the polling groups that followed up on these things, they were convinced Americans, they wanted it all, okay? Mm-hmm. This is before the Economic Bill of Rights. So is it, um, it's, it's not though, it's a cult, of po- it's a political expression in that sense, um, of programs that can advance a certain uh, set of ideals, let's say, or principles. But right. it's, it, it, it is beyond politics, those notions. It's how you achieve them or how you move forward may have a political solution, right? Oh, but, no, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So let's go back. Let's go back then and think about FDR and how he got to January uh, 1941. Let's, let's go back to, you know, I'm struck by... Herbert Hoover calling him a radical um, because FDR as um, the scion of an old family, um, Democrat, though he may be, he was certainly a man of the establishment. Absolutely. um, Completely. And his wife also the, 
the um, niece of a Republican president. Right. So, so to whom FDR himself was a cousin. I mean, yes, be that's that. right. So so he embodies the establishment and yet right. he's a radical. Well, he's everything to everybody in a way. He's a communist. He's a socialist. <laughs> he's whatever you're afraid of when it comes to change, isn't he? Yes. But here's what but FDR in his own way, he feared something more significant. Mm -hmm. OK, see. So FDR, you know, he's born in the late 19th century, he's born in the middle of the Gilded Age. And, and he grows up in a, in, a, in, a, in a political and economic order in which, you know, the expression, the rich are getting richer and working people are barely holding up their own and many are enduring poverty. Okay. It's an age in which if you talk to the foremost intellectual of his day, William Graham Sumner at Yale, it's, you know, it's an age of social Darwinism. What do classes owe each other? They owe nothing to each other. Um, the, what's the role of government to be? The role of government is to protect property and assure the capacity to own all the more property. I mean, it, it's, it's everything we think of as reactionary. And that was the prevailing political and economic order. Now, there were challenges. There were the populists in out here in the Midwest. There were the progressives in major urban centers, and there were, of course, also the socialists who were a rising force. And in fact, in 1912, when Teddy Roosevelt was one of the four candidates for president, it was said that at least three of the four, four candidates were truly progressive in some way. Now, FDR is growing up in, this, in these circumstances, somehow or other, long before, and I, I take nothing away from Frances Perkins, extraordinary woman who knew FDR you know, extremely well. But she makes it out as if FDR doesn't really become the Democrat, small d, the sympathetic, you know, sort of human, humanistic Democrat until the, until the, the 20s when he's enduring suffering polio. And he's educated by Eleanor and the people she introduces him to to find out more about working class life and so on. FDR from the very beginning is, has, has been questioning and even trying to find a way to act politically that he would not be taken as a socialist necessarily. And so, for example, in 1912, when he gives a speech at the People's Forum, he actually talks about, well, look, we, we pretty much effectively achieved liberty of the individual, obviously something of an exaggeration. But the trick is, he says, how can we pursue liberty of the community? He was looking how, how, and this is the key thing, how to create a force that would keep the robber barons and their ilk from continuing to prevent Americans, to deny Americans, the majority of Americans, from enjoying or at least having the chance to enjoy the promise made in the Declaration and the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and a government of we the people. He is, even as a young man in his 20s and 30s, however, he may not be a deep intellectual or, you know, he, he by no means. But he was seriously thinking through these political questions. And he comes out in 19, well, in 1910, entering the New York State Senate, he becomes an, he's aligned with the progressives. And that is the, and he's identified. I mean, he's got two kind of mentors in that respect. He's got Woodrow Wilson, who wins the presidency in 1912, a progressive Democrat. And he's got his own cousin and his wife's uncle, who he's now related to all the more, Theodore Roosevelt, a progressive Republican. Now, this is the interesting thing. He, through these years, already in speeches, is revealing his small-d democratic instincts. And I won't go through all those speeches. After World War I, and many people had, many of the progressives lined up with Wilson during the war, um, people had believed there would be a, a furtherance of the progressive politics, progressive legislation to try to tame, control, reform the if you like, the greed, the selfishness, the corruption, the violence-inducing power of that class of corporate bosses that who emerged during the late 19th century. However, it's an age of reaction, the 1920s. And we often get a we often get the wrong view of the 20s by way of films and other things because it's the roaring 20s. But most people don't realize that working people, urban and rural alike, actually suffered a decline in their income. They, 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 the farmers barely recovered from the recession following World War One, and working people. The only way they sustained the household income that they that they had was by way of both members of the family going out to work. 
Now, in this moment, FDR has endorsed, suffered the polio. FDR starts to develop a new politics. Okay. He doesn't leave behind progressivism. Progressivism is a, is a force pursuing reform. FDR wants to go further. This is where Perkins really got onto something. And that is he becomes all the more humane and Eleanor has introduced him to socialist Jewish women organizers in New York City, labor organizers. And he comes to see that government has more, that to harness the powers of democratic government is not merely a matter then of reforming the Gilded Age or reforming industrial capitalism. It's also a matter of uplifting those who are without. This is the liberalism that he's cultivating during the 1920s. But here's the thing. He, by the time of 1929, he, and then 30, he realizes that it's that Gilded Age capitalism and those, that class no longer necessarily called the robber barons, but the, the foremost richest men and women in America who are really responsible for the Great Depression, the crash and the Great Depression. And he already is beginning to see, in part by his education, in part by Eleanor's influence, in part literally by the folks whom he's interacted with when he's Assistant Secretary of the Navy during the First World War, when he's literally meeting the women organizers that Eleanor introduces him to, he realizes that you got to go beyond just liberalism. And this is where, and he never uses the term, he becomes a social democrat. His campaign in the spring of, of, of 1932, in which too many historians have dismissed it as not well-planned and well-organized, really have missed the boat. It is an agenda for social democracy. And if you read his speeches during, the, during that year, he is definitely looking not only to uplift, he's looking to empower working people. And in fact, in 1930, he told a good friend in a letter, I can prove it, I got it up here on my wall here. He tells a friend, I think it's time for this country to go fairly radical for at least a generation. Now, Hoover didn't know of that letter, but Hoover knew full well what FDR was saying on the campaign trail in pursuit of the Democratic nomination. And then he drives it home, FDR, of course, in that speech of his, that acceptance speech. This is important. That acceptance speech is the promise of a new deal. He takes this agenda he's laid out and he promises a new deal. Moreover, I'm pretty sure it's in that speech, he actually says that economic laws are not a product of nature. They basically, they are humanly created. That is one of the most radical statements of the modern age. This is the kind of thing you'd almost expect to hear from the likes of Karl Marx, okay? So Hoover's, in one way, how does he come to judge him as a radical? The guy's from this, you know, very privileged background, our, our man FDR. But in many ways, Hoover saw what a lot of people may not have seen, that he was confronted politically by a radical who was going to literally bring an end to the Gilded Age order, the Gilded Age political and economic order. And he was going to do it not only by harnessing the powers of democratic government, but he was going to engage Americans in harnessing that power and empowering them to do so. I mean, it's, I mean I've, I've come away, you know, little by little, I came to the conclusion that FDR was a radical. Okay, maybe not in the same sense as, you know, the standard radical who who buys into a particular political orthodoxy or a political creed. FDR is a radical because his understanding of American history makes him a radical. And anything that would obstruct the promise of the founding needed to be confronted, challenged, and quite possibly overthrown, which he literally calls for doing when he accepts the nomination the second time in 1936 in Philadelphia. I mean, it's just amazing how people can ignore these kinds of things. Well, what I find fascinating, too, about that is he's a ra I, I love the way you uh, capture him as a radical. What I find um, also fascinating about that, he's a radical that wants to not only work within systems, but to expand the systems yes. in order to accomplish what those goals are. So it's not revolution and overthrowing. It's it's adapting and modifying what we have 
to move that forward and to address first, let's think about those four. First, to address the freedom from want and the freedom from fear and those interactions that have brought America to the brink at the time. You've got to like get your table set before you can feed somebody a meal. So, yes, you know, well, sorry. In fact, this I'm glad you took me that direction, because one of the things that I really have come to see, and this, by the way, owes to FDR's assistant secretary of agriculture, who later I'm talking Rexford Tugwell, okay, who had been a member of the Brains Trust, who later writes two books about FDR. The one, and I'll just show everyone. I'll, I'll do a show and tell, hoping not to throw everyone off. But this this particular one, the Democratic Roosevelt, is just is a just a fantastic book, and I actually literally keep in my wallet a quote from this book. He says. We are a lucky people. We have had leaders when the national life was at stake. If it had not been for Washington, we might not have become a nation. If it had not been for Lincoln, we might not, we might have been split in two. If it had not been for this later Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, we might have succumbed to a dictatorship. Now, here's the interesting thing. We may be a lucky people, but the other thing to consider is that each one of those figures, those leaders was made all that was made great. And those are our three greats because the American people push them even further than they might have imagined going. Now, here's the interesting thing. FDR loved history. It's every one of his speeches just resonates with the American story. And if you look closely at the, well, what he's doing in there is he's not, some people call him the history teacher in chief. And I've done that myself, but it's more than that. When he delivers his speeches, as friends of his noted, He's actually speaking to Americans as if they know what he knows and they're thinking along the same lines as he's thinking. So in essence, he's trying to engage them in this New Deal project, not simply with their labors, right? Or for that matter, their own labor struggles, but also he wants to engage them so that they will come to see themselves in a liberal or indeed social democratic fashion. And, and I, I just, I, I marvel at, at his capacity to do that. I mean, given the fact that he came from this Hudson River aristocracy, yes. and yet he had this this sensibility, which may have well have developed in the 1920s, to be able to engage. I mean, people actually believe when he gave fireside chats that he was in their living room where they had somehow been invited to the White House because he spoke to them, whatever his accent, upper class, you know, uh, nature of his accent, the fact was they heard him as one of them and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people responded to, his, say, to him saying, I want to hear from you. They sent letters to the White House. But, and, but this is the other thing too. Given his knowledge of history, I'm convinced, and I think I can show it by way of some of his speeches. I'm going to show it by way of some of his speeches in a piece I'm writing right now, that he took a note from the revolution the founders, and even more so in many ways as to how to confront a crisis from Lincoln, just as Lincoln, okay, pushed by slaves escaping the South, by Frederick Douglass, with whom he actually became friends, was pushed and enabled to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, to do what he had longed to do. He may, he saved the United States by making America radically freer, more equal, and more democratic, whatever failings there were. Well, what FDR realized is that the way to save America in the face of the Great Depression, as he told his friend, is we need to go fairly radical for at least a generation. And he did things even during World War II, which actually strengthened the New Deal efforts. And in fact, I think some historians are right to say maybe the, New De- maybe the war effort was like a third New Deal. Well, that's why, you know, as we move forward or think about, again, the uh, For Freedom speech, which when that speech is is so rich and rife with language and phrases that Mm -hmm. are are so important. It's hard to think of it as not being an inaugural address because it which would come to two weeks later. It has a it has such a a, a wealth of meaning in, in it. That yeah, it it straddles right. these two were these two periods, right? The Depression and World War Two. Yes, I mean, and in really, fact, in fact, what's interesting when he gives that speech, he knows Americans don't want to give up the New Deal, and he tells them, "Look, 
We have to do, we have to turn ourselves into the arsenal of democracy. But that doesn't mean we're going to give up what we've achieved or we're going to suspend it. And he knew he was telling, basically telling the Republicans, there's no way I'm going to defer to what you're asking me to do. Okay. So what he's, what he does, of course, is he says, we actually should enhance what we've been doing because we have to make ourselves all the stronger by way of doing so. And then he there's an interesting thing, which, you know, only recently that I pay more attention to it after he does, gives the speech, he actually says, Something about American history, which undeniably is a, a bit of an exaggeration because he, he talks about it as a peaceful process. But he calls the American story a peaceful revolution. And that gives you the sense that the revolution, and by the way, the revolutionary changes that took place in the course of the 30s, he saw, just as he over and over again emphasized, were in the American, fundamental American tradition. Now, let me sidebar all of this and say we are not oblivious to the failings of FDR and the Democrats and the, and the American people at that time, the failings regarding Jewish refugees, the failings regarding Jim Crow in the South, and, the, and truly the, the, the tragedy of the internment of Japanese Americans. But we should also remember that those very people who suffered or endured the most Jewish Americans who may well have wanted greater refugee access, the African-Americans who were still suffering Jim Crow and the Japanese-Americans whose families were interned, they actually participated in the war effort in a decidedly, in not, if not enthusiastic, energetic and determined way. I mean, I don't need to review all of that. You can look in, in many books to, to remind yourselves of it. Well, um, when we think of those four freedoms and and of the injustices of the American experience, it doesn't it doesn't negate what the aspiration or the move towards justice is. What right. it does is highlight the need to continue to agitate and advocate for that. And that's what, as we've worked on an exhibit that's upcoming in the spring, uh, the Roosevelt's Black Americans and Civil Rights, huh. what, what we, we do see are those failings. But what we also see, which is even more powerful, really, of a, a, a aspect of the story, is that when opportunity is presented, you organize and you fight and you move forward and you, you take that little door that's cracked open and you, you push your way into it and you keep, you keep on, you keep on. And that, that is true across the board for opportunity and, and rights. And so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a Philip Randolph. Every, you know, we, not all, many of us know full well that a Philip Randolph. Okay. Challenged FDR right, to open up the defense industries to African-American workers. And FDR felt compelled to do so, and he signed two executive orders, one ordering the, you know, the creation of the Fair Employment Practice Commission, the other one doing, uh, to you know, making it all the stronger. But what people don't realize is that Randolph himself actually developed that March on Washington movement, the threat of bringing tens of thousands, and as he told FDR, 100,000 African-Americans to D.C. to demand their place in the war, in the defense effort, soon to be war effort, is that he did so because he heard the Four Freedoms speech. That's that door opening that he took, took advantage of. And by the way, after he was in the Oval Office with FDR and secured the opening of the defense industries, he either wrote or said to someone, I knew I'd get what I wanted or I'd never have been invited to the White House to do to, to talk with FDR. So, you know, it's like he he he'd already been in the White House. He knew Eleanor. He was no stranger there necessarily. But he, he knew he knew the drama and he knew how to take advantage of that opening. Yes, absolutely. Well, this is uh, uh, why this this moment in 1941 where this transition has, which has been occurring over the last probably 18 months or so, or well, the president's mind for, for longer, is he recognized the external threats. Uh, he had clearly been busy addressing our, the internal threats to what our security was and trying to s secure that and advance, as you say, with the American, with the American people, uh, the ideas of the four freedoms. Well, the, the, uh, the other two, are bedrock in the uh, Bill of Rights. So now, and looking internationally, where that is not the up, that that's the threat, you know, that could that he sees lurking right there. Um, 
now we have to secure ourselves and the world even beyond what um, he's been talking about previously with uh, freedom from want and fear, because it's all interconnected. Yeah, it would, if I can fantasize for a moment, <laughs> when I, I mean, my, my, nothing would, nothing, especially in this very cold moment here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and <laughs> the blizzard we're about, to, nothing would warm my heart more this winter in light of what we've been going through with, with the rise of a kind of neo-fascism in America and politicians who are scorning American history and, and literally denying the powers of the Declaration and the Constitution, Bill of Rights. It would be just great if we heard our leading, our leading figures, you know, whether it's Biden, Bernie Sanders, whomever, whoever else, stand forth, maybe together, and actually remind the world that we remain committed, however much it may be under assault, to the ideals of those four freedoms. And, make it even more fantastic, to hear the Democrats, at least the Progressive Coalition, come forth and talk about FDR's 1944 State of the Union, the Economic Bill of Rights message that he delivered, hoping that at war's end, Americans might be able to pursue and push Congress basically to make sure that all Americans had a right to a job with a living wage, the right to a comfortable home, the right to national, you know, to health care, what was then called universal health care, the right to a good education. In other words, FDR, it's funny, FDR had said he would wait till the end of the war to, to pursue the New Deal ideals again. And then he did it anyhow in that speech of January 44. Well, what I find fascinating about your book, too, is how um, there's a, a notion of um, kind of reclaiming history in a way and, and reclaiming the idea of, of patriotism, that, yeah. that certain aspects of the way in which we uh, experience memory, uh, the way in which the greatest generation was honored, neglects the world in which the greatest generation grew out of. And the sets of values they were fighting for that influenced the next 20 to 30 years of how our nation structured itself and, and defined itself legislatively for that matter. Yeah. You know, I always, I, I often tell, I used to tell my students, I, I said, you know, you may, th you may not understand the fact that this generation, they were maybe 15 years old in 1935. Many of them might have well, ended, the men at least, would, might well have ended up in the Civilian Conservation Corps. They would have been gay, engaged in the labors to rebuild America, or the Works Progress Administration, or the Rural Electrification Agency, or the T Tennessee Valley Authority. I can go on and on and on. The rebuilding, the reconstruction of America. They experienced it. They knew it was possible. Okay, And they're only 15. They fought a war against fascism between 1941, a war that had begun in 39 and 1945, and they won in concert with their allies. And they were at the war's end, many of them, a mere 25 years old. In 1955, 55, when the, when the American economy was exploding, when one of every three workers was in a labor union, when taxes on the wealthiest Americans had never been higher, Okay, they were only 35. And in the 1960s, which admittedly my generation in its own chauvinism thinks of as its decade, those folks are only 45. And as I think I said earlier, they elected this liberal, indeed progressive House and Senate, still filled with the Southern, you know, white supremacists. But nevertheless, look at what they accomplished. Again, I'll repeat Medicare, Medicaid. Immigration reform, civil rights, voting rights, environmental laws. Um, and I'm probably missing out on a number of other phenomena. Oh, yeah. Educational opportunities expanded radically. So if you go back and you think 15, 25, 35, 45, FDR endowed that generation. They were already patriotic in their own way. He endowed them with a vision of who they were and what they could accomplish. And I think it's uh, fascinating, too, how you um, really hold accountable the left and the right for how they approach the idea of the greatest generation, how, uh, what the response was or what the purpose was, what, what was that serving beyond honoring a generation who had um, uh, 
participated in and frankly claimed the victory uh, for uh, um, a set of ideals that were far, far removed from fascism. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that, that both both on the extremes of each are are kind of missing the overall point. They're yeah, conservative. Right. Conservatives were just have have always been determined. They were determined to suppress the New Deal and they were decidedly determined to suppress the memory of the achievements of a generation. But what so if you look back into the especially late 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, the the Republican conservatives, they celebrated that generation for their war effort, Mm -hmm. for the heroism, the bravery, the courage for which. That generation deserves accolades, deserves to be celebrated, deserves the monument on the mall in Washington, D.C. It's interesting, however, that we forget how close that FDR memorial is and that World War II memorial is and how intimately linked those two moments are in American history. But the, the, the sadder part, in fact, I was I was angry enough about what conservatives were making of the greatest generation, but my own sort of colleagues and comrades on the left, they literally were buying into it in a kind of knee-jerk way, the narrow understanding, okay? There were some who even said, well, we're celebrating the greatest generation because we're just getting the conservatives, the elite, the establishment, they're just getting us ready for another war. They completely missed the boat on the fact that Americans going through the trials and tribulations that we always seem to go through, we're looking back and trying to embrace a generation that had truly saved democracy, and in, not just by defending the status quo, but by dramatically transforming the country in favor of freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear in the course of the 30s and 40s. Let's not forget, FDR didn't just sit back and come out with the four freedoms to give a nice State of the Union message. He was empowered by what Americans had achieved during the 30s. And for my generation to somehow fail to recognize the, the literally not just the power, but the capacity of a generation to transform America, that we were failing to figure out what we might do. We were just literally taking the critical sort of hostile stance. And I, and I mean that if people look at the book, I review the kinds of remarks I made. And then the, the tribunes, whether it was the great film documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, uh, the historian um, whose name I just blanked on, of course, and uh, Tom Brokaw, who were celebrating the greatest generation, rarely, and by the way, in some cases, never mentioned the four freedoms. So in essence, I felt like, well, somebody's got to do something. And that's really, really why when I looked at the bigger picture as my editor, who was a brilliant fellow, uh, said I should do, I thought, whoa, what we're missing out on is the power of that of that story and and i think we're still missing out on that i mean when i see the kinds of things that i see whether in the public discourse or on twitter or anywhere else and the amnesia that americans have regarding what enables them today to appreciate what they have and what they now owe not that generation but their children grandchildren and great-grandchildren it's it's scares me well um on a on a hopeful note we're still here talking to you about this book which is now a few years old and yet ever more essential to be reminding people that narratives aren't aren't always one way or the other that there's complexity and nuance Mm. and yet we have to remind ourselves and there have to be those like you and and frankly us at the um, FDR library who are, are are brokering the past in a way so that people can formulate their views and opinions and not do it in you know blindly in the dark. Yeah, I mean, if I could, I mean, you know, there in the Economic Bill of Rights, there's a very interesting thing that people uh, that only reactionaries notice, as if like FDR was so outrageous. They they wanted to assure Americans a right to recreation. Think about that, a right to recreation. And by the way, the commission that helped FDR compose the Economic Bill of Rights, they called it a right to adventure. And I can tell you, and and I'm not doing this to patronize you, I can tell you the adventure that I would urge for people to have is not only 
to find their way to Washington, which I love the National Mall. I mean, ever since I was 10 years old visiting the National Mall, I never go to D.C. without walking the monuments. But I would also tell people to find their way to Hyde Park. Now, I can't tell everyone to go into the library and do research. You guys would be overwhelmed, okay? <laughs> but I can tell you there was nothing more thrilling to me when I was working on that book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, than to hold the originals of the speech, of the drafts of the speech of the Four Freedoms, the seven drafts. And I'm sure every historian who's ever bothered to do that kept hoping that they would rub somebody's, you know, the, the DNA of FDR as they touch those papers. But seriously speaking, I mean, it, it's moving to visit, just as it's moving to visit Springfield, it is moving to visit the FDR home and library. And I, I urge people to do that. It, well, I appreciate you yeah. saying that. And what um, I think part of that is, and, you know, I've worked in um, been here for seven years and I've worked in archives for a career and that that literally physical connection to the past. It's not the past. You're, you're living it in that moment every time you hold those documents. But what you get, I think, on those grounds, when you think about what made FDR um, who he ultimately became, um, as we all evolve and change, yeah. we hope um, or should uh, embrace. Certainly, Mrs. Roosevelt's a perfect example of someone whose <laughs> life evolves in thinking and continually, continually evolving. Um, that um, that you walk the grounds. You don't even need to come into the buildings. And I'm, I'm saying that I should be encouraging everyone to buy tickets. But you can walk those grounds, and in that place that seems rural and so far away at times. This young man and man formulated a series of ideas that that were so much larger and broader than where he was and who he was, actually. And that at, there was a point, I always say this to school children when I see them, that right there was at one point almost the center of the world, fighting fascism, yeah, fighting right. for the defense of democracy right there. And that yeah. the four freedoms, those ideas, that generation, that what we take with us forward, those that's what powers the future. All of that, all yeah. of that right there with us. And that's, that's why right. I love how your book draws out from memory and that idea too. Yeah. And there's something else. If I could just drop, I, I want to just drop this in. If anybody becomes so enthusiastic as to go look at all of FDR speeches or at least a selection <laughs> of them. And I, and I, for what it's worth, you know, I, I've got my FDR for freedoms book up. I later edited hmm. this volume FDR and democracy and annotated it and all that kind of stuff. But there's a speech by somebody of FDR's speech is worth reclaiming. And there's a speech that he gave in Cleveland, Ohio, in October 19, I think it was October 1940, as he's running for his third term as president, the unprecedented third term. And he speaks to Americans about those who would deny them what they have achieved but he also speaks to them about what they have achieved. And he doesn't say, my administration has done this. You should elect. He actually reminds Americans of what they have done. And he, he, he lays it all out piece by piece, what they have done. And he's not exaggerating. He's talking about their labors, their energies, their struggles, whether it had to do with reconstructing America or reforming American by, America by creating a labor movement, a housewives movement in support of working people, all of that kind of stuff. And then he lays out, and this is where he really, truly shows that he remains fundamentally, not just the liberal that we all know him as, but the social Democrat that he never called himself. He lays out a vision, this is 1940, of what still remains possible, what Americans can still achieve. It is absolutely beautiful. I'm not telling you it'll bring tears to your eyes, but if you read that speech and don't get enthused about the possibilities, but don't forget, it isn't just that you wait on your president. He actually told a journalist in 1932 that he never wanted to get too far out in front of his fellow citizens, which what he really was saying is, help me, fellow citizens, push me along. It's the only way of that famous story. I agree with you. Now make me do it. It wasn't being snotty when he said that. What he meant is I need to show Congress that you're all with me. Well, it's remarkable. The four freedoms are um, ideals. They're uh, something to aspire to, but they're also something you put into action. You can put into action. Yes. And um, I think what 
um, I, and I think I'll uh, cl close on this for, for comment from you. I think what I find fascinating is that when you don't condescend to people, when you don't patronize them, when you speak to people uh, about big things in a way that incorporates you in the conversation and doesn't set yourself above them, that, wow, a lot can be accomplished. You described FDR. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank you, Harvey. Uh, as always, just a pleasure. And uh, we hope to have you at the library, as you say, um, uh, soon and maybe in the spring. And uh, we invite everybody, of course, to participate or to come to the library, to use our research room by appointment and uh, and come enjoy everything that's there for you. So thank, thank you. you. And my best wishes to all the staff, to all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Started out on a one-way train Always knew where I was gonna go next Didn't know until I saw your face I was missing out on every moment You'll be wanting, baby, I'll be too Would you mind if I said I'm into you? So if it's real Then darling, let me know Shine, you shine, and still shine.